And so what we try to do is step back and look from the beginning to the end, what is the story God has been writing? And we're asking two specific questions. We've asked this every week. First question is this, how do I fit into God's story, right? It's not how does God fit into my thing, how do I fit into his thing, okay? But the second question we ask is this, how does this story constantly point us to Jesus? In every way across the entire time, it is constantly saying we desperately need Jesus. And I think that's going to be very clear today. I think so often we say things like this. Well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And that's true. This morning, we're going to understand that that's not the only reason Jesus went to the cross. Okay? And my prayer today is that we would leave with a grander view of the cross uh, but also that we become aware of the mind-blowing reality that the cross makes available for us right now, all right? If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Uh, as you're turning there, remember we're in our Bible reading plan. We're going through the whole Bible this year. And if you got lost in Numbers or Deuteronomy, we started Joshua yesterday, okay? So you can jump back in. Uh, click the link on the top of our homepage if you want to join in that. Would you stand with me across the room? Our tradition around here, we stand uh, for no other reason just to say, God, we value your word above everything else. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, zoe, life, and that zoe, life, was the light of all mankind, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse number 14. The Word, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you that you want to speak to our hearts, and so we tune out all the other voices for a moment, and we want to hear from you. Would you reveal this to our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. You can be seated. How many of you have ever heard of five love languages? How many of you ever heard of five languages? Some of you know that kind of thing, right? All right, we got the five. If you don't know what the five love languages, let me, let me introduce it to you using a taco, all right? <laughs> words of affirmation. Number one, words of affirmation. Your tacos are delicious, okay? Uh, acts of service. Here we go. Uh, I made you tacos, right? Uh, third, gifts. This would be gifts. Here is a taco, exactly. <laughs> Fourth, quality time, right? Let's go out for tacos together. And most importantly, fifth, right, physical touch. Let me hold you like a taco, okay? <laughs> so there's the, that's the five love languages, okay? And I... <laughs> I think that's where the babies came from. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't resist that one. Sorry. Okay, so my love language, if you don't know me, my love language is physical touch. You give me a hug, I feel like a million bucks. And so, so quarantine was awful for me, okay? Uh, my wife, the exciting thing with my wife is she has all the other love languages. And it could be any love language at any moment of any day, which is super exciting. It's like hitting a moving target all the time. I am blessed. It's awesome. But here's the deal. I believe that if God, if God had a love language, and I don't think he does, but if he did, I think God's love language would be quality time. Why? Because from the beginning to the end, God's desire was to dwell with his people. 
Like that's his desire. When you read scripture, that's what it's about. And, and we get to this passage of scripture that we just read where it said the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's desire was to be with his people. What's the, the other verse we talk about, right? He is called to be Emmanuel, which is God with us. God with us. This is his desire. And even before we jump into the message this morning, there's a principle, a truth that you need to get a hold of, and it's this. It's that God desires you to be near him. He desires you to be near him, okay? And I know some of you, you can feel forgotten. Some of you feel like nobody pays attention to you. My guess is there's somebody who's watching online, and you've been isolated this past year, and you've been struggling, and you think nobody cares about it, nobody even sees you. That's a lie. God loves you deeply. He cares for you deeply. He desires you to be near to him. This is the truth of what the word teaches us, all right? So this word that we just read, the, the, the word becomes flesh and made is dwelling among us. This word dwelling is actually connected to the, the idea and the concept of the tabernacle and the temple from the Old Testament, which we've kind of talked about a little bit. And we're going to dig into that here this morning. Now, what happened? At the very beginning, in the very beginning, God's desire was to dwell with his people. We've talked about in the beginning, God. God creates all things in Genesis chapter 1. At the end of the creation story, what do we have? We've said this every week. We have God seated on his universal throne over his kingdom, all things under his authority, right? And there's this intimate relationship between God and man. It's a beautiful thing. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is like a garden temple, it's this special place where God's presence is. It's where heaven and earth collide. There is this unity, this special experience, right? This is what the mankind has in relationship with God. But we know sin comes, and what's the result of sin? Separation. Where is man? They are kicked out of the garden. There is this separation from this beautiful place where we have relationship with God, where we're able to have unity with God, this presence of God with us. And, and we've talked about this, that Genesis 1 through 3 tells us what the goal was, this, this amazing kingdom of God. It shows what the problem is, and then the rest of Scripture is God's redemption and restoration plan to take us back to Genesis chapter 1. When you get to Revelation, you get to the end. All the language is speaking like this. I want to point to something out. Revelation chapter 21, verse number 3. This is what it says. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This was the goal, God dwelling with his people. And so God begins this redemption plan because mankind walks away. And he begins a plan. We've talked about this. He, he calls a man named Abraham. Abraham becomes a family who becomes a people who becomes the nation of Israel. And God says, listen, nation of Israel, I want to make a special covenant with you, and I want to be with you. I want to have relationship. I want to have proximity to you. I want to have nearness to you, but it just can't happen casually. He says, listen, you guys are broken, and there's no way for you to be in my presence right now. Any of you like to suntan? Any of you like to suntan? Some of you, okay. This has not been that time. Like, oh, come on, Lord, give us the sun. I, Amber and I, we love to be outside. We love to be in the sun. But we all know this. The sun is good. It's the source of all life on this planet, right? Like, we need the sun. All good things. And it is very good. But if you don't approach it the right way, it will burn you. And God is like the sun, he is the source of all things. He is the one bringing all things. But he is holy. He is righteous. And you can't approach him 
casually. His presence actually can be destructive to you. He says, listen, your brokenness in proximity to my holiness will lead to your destruction. And so God sets out this concept of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, it is a place where heaven and earth can collide again. It's this special place. It's the same principle as the temple. And there was a whole process that was made, this whole sacrificial system that was established so that once again there could be this proximity to God's presence. If you've been reading through the Old Testament, as you've been going through the first five books, you've been reading about all the sacrifices. The sacrificial system was a very bloody process, okay? It's bloody. I praise God I'm a New Testament believer. Anybody else? Okay, I, I was... I, if you don't know me, uh, I struggle with blood. Like, that's not something I do well with, <laughs> okay? Uh, I've gotten better because I have Crohn's disease. I get poked and prodded a lot, so I've kind of gotten a little used to it. But, man, when I was a kid, it was horrible, and I've, I've passed out many times. When I was in the eighth grade, uh, we were in science class, and most of you think, oh, they were probably dissecting something, and that's why he passed out. No, we were reading an article about giving blood in the eighth grade. <laughs> there were no pictures, <laughs> nothing. We're just sitting in class reading this nice article and bless my soul, I'm reading this article and I break out into a hot sweat and I'm like, oh no, I think I'm gonna pass out. And I'm looking at the clock, there's like two minutes until the period's over, I'm like, I can make it two minutes, I can make it two minutes, I got this. And I'm sweating, I'm, I take my shirt off and lay my skin down on the, on the, the I'm not my whole shirt, just my button down, no worries, okay. I'm not like stripping totally naked. Okay, and I'm laying down on my, on my <laughs> the story got more exciting than you thought, didn't it? So I, I lay my skin down on the desktop trying to cool down so I don't pass out. And I see it 10, 9. I just got to, I'm going to jump up. I'm going to go to the nurse's office. No big deal. The buzzer rings. I jump up and I start, I'm on the opposite side of the class. I get just to the doorway and I remember yelling, Mr. Lashway. Boom. I go face first into a whole set of rulers and yardsticks sitting there. Pound my face and I'm out cold. I come to and I'm like, my teacher is holding me now, and he's like, what's wrong? And, I, and it is, remember the bell rang? So it's passing period. The entire eighth grade class is walking by the door while I'm passed out on the ground, okay? It's ridiculous. And then they, they you know, wheelchair me to the nurse's office, and they call my mom to tell me what happened. And they say, hey, your son was reading an article about giving blood, and he passed out. You know what my mom did? She laughed at them on the phone because she was not surprised that I passed out during our reading blood. So I praise God I'm a New Testament believer and I don't have to sacrifice because this was a bloody thing. It was a very bloody thing. There was a lot of sacrifices necessary to purify, to, to pay for the, the sin, to atone for sin. It was a constant thing. It was this constant reminder of the sin of the people. But there was one special day that, that you've heard about, the Day of Atonement. We just have been reading about this if you're in the Bible reading plan. The Day of Atonement was a special day. Once a year, the, the high priest, he would have to make some sacrifices for himself before he even started the process. But they would bring two lambs, and they would sacrifice one of those lambs. And it, it was paying the penalty for all the sin, covering all the sin of the people, right? And it was this pure, spotless lamb that they sacrificed. And that was the blood. It was paying the price for their sin, but it was more than that. They used the blood to actually cleanse the tabernacle. Why? So that God's presence could be there. To, this could be a holy place. It could be that place where heaven and earth collide. This blood purified things. But there was a second lamb. And the le second lamb was called the scapegoat. And what did they do? The priest would take his hands and lay them on the lamb and would confess all of the sin of the people, put it on the lamb, and then someone would take that lamb out into the wilderness and set it free 
and take the sin. It was this beautiful picture of God taking all the sin, all the wrongdoings, everything that the people had done, taking it far away from the people, removing their transgressions from there. It's this beautiful picture, the Day of Atonement. The problem is they had to do it every year. And these other sacrifices were happening in an ongoing fashion, and this was a constant reminder that none of these sacrifices are sufficient to cover the sin of the people. It was just a reminder. Something more was needed, and that's why we get to Jesus. We talked about this last week, that Jesus entered the world ushering in the kingdom of God, right? He's bringing in the kingdom of God. He's inviting us in. Hey, God wants you to be a part of this thing. But the only way that we get to enter into the kingdom of God, under God's authority, into the presence of God, where God dwells with us, the only way is if he makes a way for us because we are broken and we are flawed. The only way we're going to receive this Zoe life that we talk about Right? The only way we're going to receive it is if God does something for us. This is what Jesus came saying. He didn't come saying, hey guys, I'm one of the ways out there. No, John 14, verse 6, you know what it says. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody has a relationship with God. Nobody experiences my presence. I can't dwell with anyone unless you come through Jesus. And this brings us to the passion of Jesus and ultimately to the cross of Christ. Jesus, he came talking about ushering in the kingdom of God, but he also talked about the fact that he was going to have to die. He knew it. This wasn't a shocker to him. He understood his purpose. He talked about it a lot. He predicted his death. And in fact, the disciples, if you read the stories, the disciples sometimes say, shut up, shut up, Jesus. Don't talk about that. That's a bummer. We don't want to hear about that. He's like, no, get away from me. This is why I came. I came for this reason. It says this in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 28. It says, just as I, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a ransom. I'm coming to pay the price for you. He goes on in John 10. He talks about, listen, I'm the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? Lays down his life for the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. He goes on in John chapter 10, and he says, no one takes my life. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. That's why I came. And I think there's no more beautiful picture of that than what takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, the day before he is crucified. Because Jesus goes to a garden, and he doesn't go to the garden to say, oh, man, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is just what I want to do. No, he goes to the garden and says, God, is there any other way? there's any other way, I'd rather do it that way. But I know there isn't. So I'll do it your way. I'll give my life. Christ came to do the thing that none of us would want to do. He came in to usher the kingdom of God, to take up his rightful rule and reign as we talked about last week. He is going to ascend his heavenly throne, but it demanded him to descend to the lowest human state and thus the cross of Jesus. I think we become callous to the cross, honestly. Some of you got necklaces on right now. You got the nice little gold necklaces or the earrings, and I love those. Those are great. But the problem is they prettify <laughs> what was really ugly. You know, some of you got a tattoo. You got it hanging up at your home. You got it on top of beautiful churches. It's this beautiful picture of the cross, but that's not what the cross was like. A crucifixion was horrid. It was nightmarish. It turns your stomach to think about it. But it's because of that that it is the most beautiful symbol in all of creation. Why is that? 
It's not because of what it looked like. It's what the cross accomplished for us. That's what we're going to dig into here for a moment. If, you, if you're not taking notes, I would encourage you, you need to write a few things down here real quick. I'm going to go through four things. We're going to talk about what the cross has accomplished, but the problem is I would guess most of you know number one and rarely think about the other three. And so we're going to dig into these here for a moment. What has the cross accomplished for us? Number one, the salvation of sinners. We all know this, right? Jesus died for our sins. This is the one that we talk about. And so I think you could all explain this one, but I want to go back to, remember the Day of Atonement? Let's talk about the Day of Atonement. What took place on the Day of Atonement? See, Jesus came to be that. Remember how he said everything is constantly pointing us to Jesus? That Day of Atonement was to say, this is what Christ is going to do for you. So what did Jesus do? He was the first lamb. He paid the penalty for our sin. His death paid the death that we deserved, right? His death paid that price for us. But more than that, the blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It purifies us. Just like the blood purified the tabernacle so the presence of God could be there, so it purifies us. Why? So that the presence of God can live inside of us. That's what Jesus' blood has done for us. But Jesus isn't just the first lamb, he's also the second lamb. He is the scapegoat. What does it say? It says the sin of the world was placed on him. And it also says in Psalms that so far as the east is from the west, so far has our God removed our transgressions from us. That's what God does through Christ. He saves sinners. Praise the Lord, we need it. But that's not it. <laughs> There's more. Number two, what does it accomplish? The conquest of evil. The conquest of evil, because a lot of times we look at the world and we're like, yeah, but there's still evil in the world. Yeah, but Jesus dealt the fatal blow to evil and to death on the cross and resurrection, right? The act that set us free, remember the thing that set us free, eternally condemned the powers of darkness. It's a beautiful thing. One of my favorite passages in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, here's what it says. It says, when you, all of us, when we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us going on. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, that, that's the first part. Salvation, awesome. But it goes on. And Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know what took place on the cross? Every evil power that exists converged in one moment. What do we have? We have the, the power of political power. The Roman Empire put him on that cross. We have rel evil religious authorities of man put him on that cross. There was evil men in general that put him on that cross, that harassed him, that tore him down. But even the principalities, the evil, Satan desired him to be dead. And in a moment, they put him on the cross and they're all like, ha ha, you're dead. What did Jesus say? I am triumphing over you through that death. The thing you think that is killing me is killing you. That's what the cross is. It's powerful what God has done through the cross. The fulfillment is yet to come, but the, the victory has been won. That's what took place in the cross. All right? That's number two. Number three, the perfect 
kingdom example. The perfect kingdom, what was accomplished? The perfect kingdom example. The pinnacle of kingdom living was revealed on the cross. Remember when Jesus taught, what did he teach? He taught a way of living that was totally different than the rest of the world. He would say, you know, you guys have heard this, but I say this. God's kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom. Greatness does not look like greatness, right? No, weakness looks like greatness. Those who lower themselves, those who humble themselves, those are the ones who are greatest. And on the cross, what is he presenting? He's saying, this is the goal. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom, to live a life that embodies laying yourself down, surrendering yourself, submitting yourself to others. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, you look throughout it over and over and over. It keeps pointing back to this moment. You want to know how to love? Love like Jesus on a cross, right? You want to know how to forgive? Forgive like Christ on a cross. That's what, this is the pinnacle. This is what he's pointing to. So if you're ever questioning, you're like, I'm not really sure how I should live my life. Look at him and do that. It's the clearest picture of what kingdom living looks like. And if at any point you look at your life and you're like, I look nothing like Christ on a cross, then you need to get to your knees and say, God, would you forgive me? Because I've gotten off somewhere clearly. Okay? Fourth, though, and I think this is the most powerful. The cross is the revelation of God. The revelation of God. There's a quote by a Catholic theologian And it says this, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Why do I say that? Because in the cross, what do you have? You have the justice, the righteousness, the holiness of God in fullness, while at the same time, the grace of God the love, the beauty of God converging in this one moment. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. In fact, we talk about that and it says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. But you want the clearest picture of what God is like? Look at Jesus on the cross. That's what God is like. The God who would say, you're broken, and I'll take it on myself. You're lost, and I'm going to make a way for you to be found. You're dead, and I will bring you back to life. And I'm willing to take the stripes. Those stripes that he didn't want to take, he was willing to for us. If that doesn't give you a clear picture of what our God is like, I don't know what else will. He is not the heavy-handed God looking up in heaven trying to make your life unfun, to suck the life out of you. No, he's the God in heaven who knows the state that you are in and is willing to do whatever it takes to rescue you. That's who our God is. And I don't think there is a, a better time for us to take communion than in a message like this. So we're going to pause in, just for a moment in the middle of this message just to, to do that. If you're online, I encourage you to grab your elements. If you are in the room, I would encourage you to take them out. You can open up if you'd like to. It says on the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
says that he uh, took the bread, took the wine, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. But what are we remembering? Remembering that he, he paid the price for our sin, right? That's a good thing. But we're also remembering that he conquered death. We're also remembering that he gave us the model for how we should live our lives. And we're also remembering that if we're at any point forget what God is like, we look to this. We say, this is what God is like. This is who he is. So the night before Jesus was crucified, he went to a garden, as we said. He said, God, if there's another way, I want to do it that way. But not my will, yours be done. He submitted himself to the next 24 hours. He said that there was a, a group that was brought in by the religious authorities to arrest him. They hauled him off before the leaders and they lied about him. They spit on him. They tore his hair, called him every name, brought up false witnesses against him to say, hey, who do you think you are? And instead of defending himself, which he had every right to do, what did he do? He stayed silent because he wasn't here to, to fight for himself. He was here to live, lay himself down. And so it says, after that, they brought him to the Roman authorities before Pilate. And Pilate's like, I don't find anything to do with this guy. I, I don't want to, but because he was a coward, he said, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna submit this guy to go get crucified. But before he crucifies him, what does he do? He says, have him flogged. You know what takes place on a flogging, right? They strip him naked because the goal is to shame them as much as possible. Christ was completely naked, strapped around a pole, and they would take a whip, not just a normal whip, one that had bone and glass and rock on the end of it, and they would whip his bare back. But it wasn't just like, let's whip across. No, they would whip, and it would stick. Then they'd rip it off, which would tear flesh, and tear muscle away from his body. Every one they didn't do it once. They didn't do it five times. They didn't do it 10 times. They didn't do it 20 times. 39 times they whipped until there was nothing left on his back but open skin and muscle. And then they took a crown, a thorn, and they didn't just place it. They jammed it on his head so that those corns were digging into his skull. They put a, a robe around him and they mocked him. They said, you think you're a king? Let's bow down before this great king. And then they said they gave him a cross and made him carry it up his own hill to be crucified. He could only make it up half the way because he, he just couldn't make it. The strength was not there and somebody else carried it the rest of the way. He gets to the top of the hill called the place of the skull and there they crucified him. They put a nail into both hands into his feet and hung him in the air. And For hours he hung there having to pull up on the very nails in his hands just to get a breath over and over and over again. In that excruciating pain, he's got thieves next to him. One of them is mocking him while he's up there. It says that the other soldiers walk around and say, hey, you were able to rescue everybody else. Why don't you rescue yourself? But he didn't. There's a song, one of my favorite songs, that says he could have called 10,000 angels, and he could have to pull him down off that cross. But what did he say? I, nobody takes my life. I give it. And in this moment, I give my life. And what did he cry out? Father, forgive them. These people who don't have a clue what they're doing, they are lost and broken. They don't know what, what, it, what side is up. 
forgive them. We get to the end, he says, it is finished. He gave his body for us, not because it was something that just sounded like a good idea, but because it was the only way to rescue humanity in our broken state. So I'm so glad Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, said, do this in remembrance of me. We don't, we don't get past this, guys, okay? We get callous to a lot of stuff in this world. We can't get callous to this. We have to remember the body of Christ. We have to remember what this means to us. Because if we don't, we've forgotten the whole thing. It's not, Christianity is not self-help. It's God redeeming us. That's what we need. So it says he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Let's eat together. same way after dinner, he said he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Once for all. Once for all. Can we drink together? Just right, for, right where you're at, if you could just, just respond, say thank you, Jesus. In your own words, God, thank you. Thank you. God, thank you for what you did for us. What it still provides for us today. All these years later, God, you still provide for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. I want to I wanna close with our message here this morning because it's great to have a, an emotional response to God's presence, but it has to transform who we are and how we live. Okay? And so what I want to do is I want to come to our big so what. Every week we have a big so what. We say, so what, what's the point of this thing? If you forget everything else that I've talked about this morning, this is the big so what. You are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. Remember, what does Jesus' blood provide? Oh, he paid the penalty for your sin, but it is atoning work. It cleanses you. Why? So just like the tabernacle could have the presence of God there, now you are clean and the presence of God now dwells inside of you. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? It says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? It goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and it says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Do you understand this? You are now the temple, but it isn't just you, it is you all, all of us are the temple. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. We're being built together as a holy temple where God lives by his spirit. Stop for a second and think about how mind-blowing that is. That the God of the universe, the one who created all things, dwells not just near us, but in us. That's crazy. It's unbelievable to me to even think about this. There is no temple, there's no more tabernacle where there's just this one place where God's presence is. No, what did we talk about last week? God came to establish a dandelion kingdom with his presence popping up 
all over the place. His kingdom established in you and in me. That was his desire. And so the question I have to ask is then, how then should we live based on this reality? How should we live? I think it's pretty obvious for some of us that if God truly dwells in me, then there may be some things in my life I should stop doing. There's some things I allow in my life. There's some sin that I, right now I'm in the midst of something and I'm like, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Because a lot of times we'll have this mentality, man, I hope God didn't see that. Guess what? He dwells in you. Pretty sure he saw that. Okay? But I think that's even just the, that's the starting point. It's more than just what we should lay down. It's how should we live with the knowledge that God's presence goes with us everywhere we go. Because I hear people sometimes talk about, man, I'm in a job and it's just kind of, everybody's just so bad. Do you realize that although that might be a bad environment, you bring the very presence of God with you when you walk in those doors? In your home, you're like, yeah, my whole family, they don't love Jesus. You're right. But guess what? You carry the presence of God with you wherever you go into that environment. He who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. There is hope in you. You get to bring that with It should change the way you live. It should change the way you think. That thing where you think like, I'm not strong enough. Guess what? God lives inside of you. And if that is true, then there should be life flowing in you, right? You can live as an overcomer, not falling back like, oh, woe is me. No, I am an overcomer. The presence of God lives inside of me. I can live differently because of that. I'm going to close with a story. I heard this a few years ago from... Pastor Derry Northup, and he said he had a, in his church, they had a lot of different people that would walk in, and one time there was a stripper that came in and, and started attending the church, and, and he just said, hey, I want you to come, just keep listening, get in the word of God, start reading it. And, uh, you know, things growing, she's obviously growing in her faith. Several months pass by, and she's reading her Bible, she reaches out to him, hey, Pastor, I read about this verse, it says, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? He said, yeah. If you've submitted your life to Christ, God dwells in you. She was quiet for a few moments, and then she said, I don't think I can keep doing what I'm doing. Why? Because somebody forced her to? Someone told her, you're bad for doing it? No, she had a revelation of who she is. She had a revelation of the fact that I am the temple of the living God, then why would I lower myself to live like someone else? And so I come to you here this morning that every one of us, that we would step into the reality that we are the temple and corporately we are the temple of God. That's what it means to be the church. It's the place where God dwells by his spirit. Would you stand with me across the room? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the reality of the cross, what the cross has provided for us. God, you've done more than we could ever earn ourselves, and we thank you for that, God. I pray, Lord, that this truth that we talked about, that you would dig them deep into our soul, into our belly, God, that this would change us. Father, this wouldn't just be a message we heard and walk out the door, but God, would you change us, God? Change us, God. We live so far below what you have in store for us, God. May we live in light of the reality of your presence in every way, God. Help us as your followers to do that. With every head bow and every eye closed, if you are in the room here this morning or you're with us online, 
My guess is there's someone here today who has never received the hope of Christ. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus and had his blood cover your sin, pay the penalty for your sin, and atone you that you might be in God's kingdom dwelling with God. And if you're here this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit's been calling your heart all morning long. If you have not stepped into that opportunity, you've not responded to him, I pray right now that your heart would say yes to him. With every head bow and every eye closed, I'm gonna invite you as just an act of faith right now to lift up your hand and say, God, I wanna respond to you and give my life to you completely. If that's you, raise your hand across the room. Yes, if you're with us online, I encourage you to respond on your own as well. Yes, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Would you pray with me across the room? Father, we thank you that you love us and that you care about us, that you have provided a way for us. God, we acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our desperate need for you. We believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. God, that he gave us life for us, that he overcame sin and darkness. And so we submit our lives to him. We surrender ourselves to him. We, God, we say we are yours. We give you our lives, God. Help us to live for you, live in your kingdom, under your authority, for your glory, God. And God, I pray that we would be changed from the day forward. God, you make us alive from death. And we praise you for that, God. Have your way in us all this week, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Amen. I want to leave you with a challenge here this morning, okay? And this is a very simple challenge. It's this. Bring the presence of God with you. Don't leave it in here, okay? Don't leave it in here. Take the presence with you. Have that mindset. It's already true, so you might as well live like it, okay? It's already reality. Let's live like it. Let's recognize that God is with us in every circumstance, whatever you faith. I pray that God would use you this week to bring his presence all around the world.